Well, good evening, everyone, and it's uh, fantastic to see you all here tonight on what is possibly one of the most depressing uh, weekends of the year when it's dark and cold and Christmas spirit has all but evaporated. When we were designing this series, we wanted to think about resilience. Now, I'm sure if many of you are in work, you hear this term and a lot of definitions, but for me as a Christian, resilience is not just about surviving when difficult times come, but it's about thriving. It's the ability of something to have a knock or have pressure put on it, and then when that pressure is removed, to come back to its original state. But also I think for resilience, and especially uh, from the biblical view of it, it's not just to get to the end of our life, the end of the race, and go, thankfully that was okay, we weren't completely destroyed, but actually as Christians, through the difficulties we encounter, to actually grow and understand more about who God is. So if you turn to Psalm 25, we'll read the psalm in its entirety. And uh, I always forget, what's the number in the few Bibles, if somebody can shout it out. So Psalm 25, you can hope, it's somewhere in the middle of the Bible, I'm sure you can find it yourselves. You just open it in the middle, you'll get the Psalms. Four, five, nine, okay. To you, Lord, I lift up my soul. O oh my God, in you I trust, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress." Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Father, help us to walk in your paths, teach us your way. Help us to understand who you are and how we can overcome guilt as Christians and as those, Father, maybe who don't yet know you. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So this is one of many psalms that seem to go back and forth between different moods. It's kind of like there are two strands that are woven together in this psalm. 
And one of the ways actually to unpack this is not to think of it as the story or a series of episodes on Netflix or a a sort of a climactic end to a grand finale. If you are Hebrew, you will often find that the main point of a song or a prayer isn't found at the end, but in the middle. One of the advantages of that is that you can't just fast forward to the end of the episode. You need to understand the whole thing as it is and work your way out from there. And the central verse that really is the only message I want to leave with you tonight is verse 11, which says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So the structure of this psalm, we'll come back to structure a bit later on, tells us what the message is. David asks, because of God's great name, his character, his reputation, the things who he is, he wants him to pardon his guilt, and it is very great guilt. So before we maybe get some answers from God's word about going beyond guilt, let's think a little bit about the Lord's character from this psalm. David commits his soul to the Lord. He lifts his soul up and asks that he's not put to shame to public embarrassment. He knows God has saved him, is God of his salvation. He's already right with God. But he asks God to remember his mercy and his steadfast love. He wants to walk in God's paths, literally to drive in the wagon wheels of the God who has gone before him. He wants to be like a pupil to be instructed and learn God's humble way. That's the hymn that we were singing uh, before I started speaking. And all these paths and ways of the Lord are are steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, when we read these things, our English words can dilute some of the rich meaning of the Hebrew uh, thought. You see, God's truth and faithfulness isn't some fluffy concept. It talks about his eternal reliability and the security that that brings for a Christian The great mercy it talks about is is like that of a mother who has compassion on the child of her womb. That feeling that she has for the life that is in her, that is the kind of compassion that God feels towards his people. It's a very apt metaphor because in Jeremiah and Hosea the prophets, it, it talks about God giving birth to his people, Israel. God is so invested with his people, he's not remote and out there and a killjoy. He is like a mother to them. And God's steadfast love is his enduring covenant loyalty to his people. It's not a passing feeling where one day he loves it and the next day he goes, ah, I'm just not so keen on you. But this is a legal, moral and wholehearted commitment of God to stick with his people through thick and thin. Can I ask tonight, or if you're listening, is the God that you serve and that you believe in, this God of the Bible, is your God reliable, secure and trustworthy? Does he care for you with deep and great emotion? Or is he out there, remote, unconcerned, really with your struggles and troubles, but ready to punish any sin or disobedience. Does this God that you worship demonstrate unswerving loyalty to you? The kind of loyalty that as Christians we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. The kind of loyalty that would lead this God to die for people. 
Because the practical importance of all this is that, as verse 8 says, because God is good and upright, he teaches sinful people his way. And this puts the lie that, that some have raised that God in the Old Testament is angry and vengeful and capricious. Certainly God does show his justice, but more often it's his mercy and forgiveness for those that will accept it that are seen clearly on the pages of scripture. So this psalmist, he understands this God. David realizes it's going to take time to walk a new path. And even if you're a Christian here tonight for only a few weeks or a few months and you're beginning to take those new steps, or maybe you've been a Christian uh, for several decades, it doesn't matter. All Christians are in the school of God. And they need to learn, as we sang in our first hymn, to wait on God. Now, waiting on God is not like waiting for your DHL parcel delivery, just sitting there passively, you can't do anything. Waiting on God is like a waiter waiting on those whom he is serving, attending to their desires and requests, being alert and attentive to what might happen. You see, Christianity is not just a prayer or a magic trick that our sins are magically forgiven or that if we're christened or baptized, that somehow that makes us right with eternal God. No, it begins with faith and repentance for sins, but it's a journey and growth. As David Russell described last week, it's a growth that is rooted in God's word and God's world. So as we think about God's character here, it's overwhelmingly good sincere and wholesome and this is the God who wants us all to come and know him to trust him to experience the love that he can give as a mother for the child in her womb to experience the security of one who will not change with the days or the seasons or the years or with what's convenient or what's politically appropriate but will stick with his people through thick and thin But there is a big stumbling block, and that is our sin. And it's our sin that leads to guilt. Before we look at guilt, let me just put a quick advertisement for you to listen to our series on Genesis on the website. Because it talks about the beginnings of sin. It talks about God's role in uh, creating men and women. And if you have questions about this, many of the burning issues will be discussed on the 15th and the 22nd of January at 8 o'clock. This and next Wednesday with, as was described, a local Christian teacher, Paul Coulter. I can't start to go into all of that tonight, but I would certainly urge you, if you're interested and you have real questions, don't be afraid to ask them. But what I would say is be prepared to have answers that might actually require you to change your view of God and how you respond to him. So let's think about guilt. Guilt is like this other strand wrapped around in this psalm. And as the psalm progresses, David seems more and more on the surface to become almost a little bit unsure of himself. He starts in verse 7 by saying, well, remember not the sins of my youth. But then he goes on to say that his guilt is really big, it's great before God. Before he almost begins to collapse in himself, describing his distress, his afflictions, the troubles he is experiencing. Maybe these were because of his guilt and sin. In fact, he has become entangled in a net while his enemies look on and seek to destroy him. What's this referring to? Well, we don't know specifically what, when David wrote this psalm, 
But the great Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon in the 19th century wondered, was this to do with David's relationship with his son Absalom? Did this provide a backdrop to the psalm? Absalom was a very handsome son of David and he knew it. David favoured him greatly. But because David loved his son so much, he overlooked his fatal character flaws and he allowed those to undermine him. And most importantly, potentially undermine the kingdom that God had given Israel. You see, Absalom just couldn't wait to be king. He rebels against and persecutes his father. And when he finally meets his end at the hand of one of David's military men, David weeps and says, Oh, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. The Israelites under David had secured a major victory against a potential rebellion, yet David is concerned about his own family situation, his own loss and his grief, and it requires his military man Joab to say, look, you've brought shame on Israel. This should be a day of feasting, not a day of mourning, so get out there and show people that you are a king. I think David keenly felt at the time he learned his son had died of his regrets as a father, the guilt and regret about mistakes that he had made. So guilt can often come to us because, well, actually we have done something wrong. It's an appropriate response, demanding an appropriate punishment or, or a way of making something right. When I was in school, I had to endure going through Macbeth. Um, I still, reading it, can't understand what, what's going on. and yeah, A dictionary, a translation. But you've got two main characters. You've got Macbeth himself, who's a general. And you've got Lady Macbeth. And Lady Macbeth wants to advance her husband, so they bump off a Scottish king, King Duncan. For Lady Macbeth, she says, a little water clears us of this deed. For her, guilt, that's nothing. The water will wash the blood off my hands, and that absolves me. Whereas Macbeth himself wonders, would the great oceans wash this blood clean from a hand? No. Rather, my hand would turn the seas red or the multitudinous seas incarnating. The blood on his hands, the moral guilt, whatever he touched would become polluted with sin and death. It would make the green sea red. And so in society today, we get two very opposite views of guilt. Many people think, well, guilt can be swept under the carpet. It's okay, we've all done wrong. Whereas other people are so consumed They have a profound awareness that they are potentially under judgment, maybe from God, maybe from other people, from whatever, and they don't see any way of cleansing from guilt. What a relief and what a blessing it is to know that the gospel message that we share in this church is that Jesus Christ came to take our sins and to clean us up from this guilt, to wash our hands, whether it's murder or bloodshed, whether it's outbursts of anger, whether it's selfishness, lying, being disobedient to authority, selfish, unholy, unmerciful, whatever sins we have, he came to make us, in his sight, complete and perfect. But we're going to have to admit that guilt. And so the question that we must have is, whenever we come to God, is it because we feel guilty because of wrong things we've done, and we are looking for forgiveness from the only source of that forgiveness. The main message of this psalm is that only in the name of the Lord, only in his character, can we find forgiveness and have our guilt dealt with. Or 
Do you come to God because you feel by doing the God bit, by ticking the box, by going to confession, by saying the sinner's prayer, that that will somehow atone for your guilt, make it a bit better? Do you actually have regard to what Jesus Christ has done and what he sacrificed for sinners on the cross? So if guilt can come from wrong things we have done from sin, it can also come from unwise past decisions. And I wonder again, does David begin to think about that when he realizes who God's character or what God's character is like? He talks about, remember not the sins of my youth. Now, when I think about myself as a young man, I have many, many sins, many regrets, many stupid things I did because of immaturity, selfishness, and relationships that I didn't nurture, opportunities I didn't take. I remember one that for some reason I I do think of quite a bit was I had a friend who is very good friends with at school, and towards the end of our time, his father father had, had died of cancer. I had lots of things going on in my life, and I chose to go to something else rather than my friend's father's funeral. Now, nobody ever said anything to me. Nobody ever criticized me for it. In fact, it was only really, as I got a bit older, that I realized, actually, that was totally wrong. I should have supported my friend. And I still feel guilt for that. There's nothing I can do about it. But I put it down to youthful immaturity and and, and youthful sins and transgressions. Sometimes people can misunderstand what forgiveness involves. We're very well aware in Northern Ireland about two main traditions with two very different narratives. And sometimes they occasionally meet. Often, as our first minister said, they cannot be more different. And still today, on both sides of those stories of the troubles, do hurt, pain and suffering continue on. And people feel guilty for things that they have done. Maybe you're a believer here and you simply can't get over aspects of your past. You know you've been forgiven. You know your sins have been dealt with. But yet you find in some way there are parts of your lives that are blunted and cut off that don't grow because of a sin in your past. Sometimes Christians can get caught up in a cycle of misery and self-loathing and ultimately become ineffective because of their guilt there was one young man who, who came to me a, a couple of years ago in the church here, and I haven't seen him much after, but he'd become a Christian in recent months. And he came to me quite distressed because he was getting on well in his job. He'd been working for a couple of years. But he realized as a Christian that sin was important, and it was important to be dealt with. Yet he felt so much guilt because during his further education course, he had actually taken some shortcuts. He called it cheating, and yeah, maybe there was some question sharing or working together on some projects that coursework should have been done individually, things like that. It wasn't major stuff, but yet he was so consumed by guilt that he wanted to put things right by writing to the education authority and saying, look, I'm handing my qualification back because I, I, I cheated. And I took a lot of advice on this, and we, we talked to him, um, and we realized that actually if he was to pursue that path, there would be no net gain for anyone. The Education people would need to launch an inquiry if people said, oh, you know, there was a lot of people in your course cheating. It was probably quite minor and it wouldn't actually have changed his eventual outcome. But yet sometimes people can have such a keen awareness of their guilt that almost they go overboard to try and and make amends. It's right to do that, but sometimes things just can't be fixed. The relationships has ended, 
the opportunity's lost, the person's died, or the situation is no longer relevant. So how do we have a biblical view of guilt and how the believer is to face this? I think David begins to show us one way in which it could go wrong, where somebody gets stuck in the past, and even though they know they're accepted, they have a glorious future awaiting them, they wall off some of those parts from God, from other people, because they just can't think, how could God deal with this? How could I have done such a thing and yet be preaching in a church or yet be given a position of responsibility? How could God bless me so much yet this is the thing that I did to that person? This is the person I was. Another example is people who can be so consumed by guilt that they become self-destructive. Judas Iscariot was a really, really good example of this. A man who had been apparently walking in the Lord's ways, who'd been mentored by the Lord for three years, yet betrays him for, for money. And when he has a change of mind, he finds that there isn't forgiveness anywhere that he searches for it. The Jewish religious system says, what's that to us? See to it yourself. This has nothing to do with us. You've betrayed innocent blood. And consumed with guilt and remorse for sins, Judas goes and hangs himself. So what does godly grief and repentance look like over guilt? Well, if you turn to Second Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives us some pointers. Paul has now written this second letter to this group in Corinth in the first century AD. This was a group that was going well, but they had also had a major issue where they tolerated open, public, and very serious sexual sin in the congregation. Paul said to them that the loving and Christian thing to do is not to accept or love the person and let them continue, but to show how their behavior is incompatible with Christianity, to put a stop to behavior, and because you've publicly venerated this person become proud, you need to remove this person from a time from your congregation. Because just as Macbeth found that his sin and his bloodshed would contaminate everything around it, so also this man's sin in the church would cause guilt and pollution to spread. So Paul commends them whenever they did have a change of heart. And he says in verses 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. What Paul is saying here is that I'm glad the situation is resolved and improved. You've restored this person. You've put them out. You've dealt with the sin. But actually, in terms of resilience, I'm pleased at the lesson that you have learnt. 
And that lesson is that it's okay to be sad about sin so long as it is a grief centered on God. Godly grief centers on our relationship with God, how that has been threatened by sin, by the wrong that we've done, how God's character, his name and his fame are brought down in the world in the eyes of other people who look on because of sin, and also God's mission to save people when that's thwarted. Whenever you have godly grief, you are concerned about those things, God's name, God's work, and your relationship with God. Whereas worldly grief is centered in self, is centered on, as Judas did, well, what will the disciples think of me? What will the Christian church think of me? What will the religious leaders think of me? And his worldly grief led to death. And one of the aspects of guilt and feeling guilt and grief over sin, which are positive, which allow the Corinthians to spring back and to grow. Well, Paul says, look what it has produced in you. You wanted to clear yourselves. You wanted to establish your name as a church that was pure. You were earnest. You were full of enthusiasm and zeal. You were indignant. You said, how could we tolerate this sin in the middle of our congregation? You feared God. You understood whom you were dealing with. Not somebody who just sweeps the sin under the carpet or just gives you a quick wash and that's it. But somebody who had to send his son to die for you. In fact, you had so been consumed with godly grief that you found your hope in God. And indeed, you proved yourselves as such innocent. You were acquitted. God gave you the all clear And this is the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. This is why verse 11 of this psalm is so pivotal. Because it takes God's name and who he is as the only point at which we can find true forgiveness. The only source of triumph over guilt. King David was no stranger to guilt. He had committed murder. And adultery. But he didn't spiral into a self-destructive depression, circling the drain pipe of his own destroyed personality and corrupted witness against God. No, he realized against God he had sinned. He realized whom he had hurt, and he knew that only in the Lord could cleansing and a new start begin. The Apostle Peter also betrayed the Lord Jesus like Judas, on three occasions. But yet, Peter had a godly grief. And it was a process for Peter to come back. Peter was still wondering when Jesus made breakfast for him on the beach. Well, what about that person? What's going to happen to him? And yet the Lord, when he confronts us with our guilt and her sin, and what we're going to do about it, he says, Peter, do you love me? This is one acid test of if you're feeling guilty, Is it godly or not? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you value who he is? What he's done? Do you feel something when you think the lengths to which he went to guarantee your salvation? Is there anything about his character that inspires you to walk in ways that are different? To see, actually, God's ways, as David said here, all his paths are steadfast love. And faithfulness. So the Christian and biblical response to sin and guilt 
is to see God in the middle and to work from there. One of the most sinful people in the eyes of the Jewish first century was a woman caught in the very act of adultery that the Jewish religious leaders bring before our Lord in John's gospel. And they say to her, teacher, what should happen to this woman? By the law, letter of the law, she should be stoned to death. That was the law in Israel. Yet the Lord asks those who accuse this woman, he who is without sin amongst you, let him cast the first stone. And you know the story, we've done John's gospel recently. They each walk away because they have been convicted by their sin and their guilt. And the irony of this picture is that they would have found cleansing from that guilt in the one who stood on the ground, in front of them, standing on the ground, writing in the sand. They would have found in Christ forgiveness. And yet they walked away. It is this sinful, very guilty woman, she was, as we would coin her phrase, guilty as sin, who is forgiven and is told to sin no more and go her way. And so David in this psalm asks God, yes, I've done things wrong, I'm also experiencing inner stress and turmoil, but deliver me, preserve me. Don't let me be put to shame, to public embarrassment like this woman, like those who make your name almost be trampled in the dirt. Because I take refuge in you. This woman was taking refuge in both the most dangerous place, the Lord Jesus Christ's presence, the judge of all the earth, the creator of the heavens and the earth, But it was the safest place because it was the only place she could find forgiveness from guilt. It's because of who God is that David can say at the end of the psalm, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. I don't actually believe this is just God's integrity. I believe this is actually David has been given integrity, uprightness and righteousness. Because in Psalm 26, the next verse, he says, Vindicate me, O Lord. Show people that I am right. For I've walked in my integrity and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. God wants to move us in difficult times with guilt. Not to become self-destructive. Not to have a worldly grief. But to become stronger. And to say, I can walk in righteousness. I can walk in integrity. And how quickly we can forget this. So much guilt can come from disordered family dynamics as we saw in David's life. You imagine Jesus Christ who had spent almost in a maternal way nurturing the disciples over three years to find that Judas, knowing all of any man at that time about his character, to turn away from that and to really kiss the Lord in betrayal. What must the Lord have felt with that betrayal? Yet because of God's steadfast love, he still offered to Judas the possibility of forgiveness and repentance at that last supper. So God wants to move us beyond guilt. And before we finish, there's something else about the structure of the psalm that gives me a great deal of hope. This psalm is structured as what we call an acrostic. So each of the 22 verses or thoughts begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's about seven or eight other psalms that are like this, including the really big Psalm 119 Um, where every letter sets off a paragraph. 
And why is this important that this is written in a way? Well, I had some people round to the house uh, last week from work, again, to, to lift your spirits and depression. And uh, I gave them just a set of napkins. It was just lying on the sideboard. People could take it and come as they go. No thought. I think some of them were left over from last Christmas. Yet, if I was really concerned and I was really valuing the company of a person and wanted to put on a great meal and a great show for them, I would learn a bit of origami and I would do something really fancy. The people who have those skills with the... Um, so the serviettes, you know, I'm sure you've seen them in fancy restaurants and ducks or whatever. Something really beautiful and creative. And people would see that and they would go, oh yeah, somebody has put a lot of effort. This meal, this time is important. And you would look beyond that structure and that creativity to go, well, ultimately it's a napkin, it's a serviette, it's to be used. It's a little bit like this with the psalm. You don't get caught up in the structure or uh, how it's written. You look at the content, but in the structure you can see how God's word has been so carefully designed for our instruction. And what is in this content is a man who has messed up in the past, has messed up in his present, and will probably mess up in his future and feel real guilt. Yet this is God's word, as much as Genesis as we've been studying, and as much as the Gospel of John. This is God's word to us. And what encouragement it is, That because of who God is, he wants to instruct us. And he instructs us through the faith of this Israelite king who has made so many mistakes. Yet, if you're feeling guilty tonight, you can learn and be encouraged from this psalm. You can find salvation and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Such you can lift up your soul to God. And you can be effective for him. Knowing that all of his paths are steadfast love and faithfulness.